What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051. 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Father, thank you so much for recording the thoughts of the Lord Jesus from the cross. And so help us now, Lord, to turn our eyes now to Calvary, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 22, verse 1. Tonight, I'm going to read this psalm with the part that starts off with normally you don't read, but it's important where it says in Psalm 22, verse 1, to the chief musician upon Ajalet, Shahar, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not. In the night season, and am not silent, but thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee. They were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. That's the verse for us tonight, verse six. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. So in our last time together, we started the study of this great Psalm 22. We opened our Bibles like we've just done now. We turned to the first verse and we read what I just read, a Psalm of David. We read that, and after we read that, we say, really? Really? Because the more we read, the more we realize this is not describing David. For example, in verse six, it says that he's despised of the people. There was never a time in David's life when he was despised by all the people of Israel. We read in verse 11, there is none to help. David was never in a situation in life where there was no one to help him. There was, this was, there was always someone to help David. There was always a Jonathan or somebody else. Verses 14 through 17, we, are, we have before us here a description of a complete and total exhaustion to the point of being drained out. David was never in a situation like that. In verse 17, we read, they look and stare upon me. David was never stripped of his clothes and put on a display naked. 
In verse 16, we read, they pierced my hands and my feet. David never had his hands and his feet pierced. In verse 18, we de it's describing a person whose coat is being gambled for. David never had his coat gambled for. And so very quickly, as we read all this, we come to realize this is not describing David. David's not writing about himself in this psalm. He's writing about someone else. And it's just like Philip. He asked the Ethiopian eunuch, do you understand what you're, what you're reading? And the Ethiopian said, how can I? And then he said, tell me, is this, is the prophet, he was talking about Isaiah 53, is the prophet speaking of himself or someone else? And this is the same thing we can say here in Psalm 22. Is, the, is David speaking of himself or someone else? Clearly, this is someone else. This is the Lord Jesus Christ he's describing in a graphic description of the crucifixion. This is the crucifixion of God's Christ, of God's Messiah that he sent to man. We read this, these words here, we read it and we shake our head. So we read this and say, why? Why did God allow this to happen to the one he calls my dearly beloved son? And so to answer that question, we took a lot of time last week just to consider the, the subject of the reality of hell. You say, well, what does that have to do with the crucifixion? Everything. Because the reality of hell answers the question, why did this happen to the Lord Jesus? It's because of the reality of hell, because God desires that no one should be cast into hell. So we considered, we thought about hell, the overwhelming feeling of those in hell of shame as they're being cast into hell. We considered the never-ending physical pain, the being burnt, the torment, the worms that don't die. We considered the soul pain of being absolutely in a state which is, could be described totally forsaken by God, abandoned. We considered the feeling of the frustration of looking for some light in hell in a place that's called outer darkness. And these were just little glimpses just little glimpses of hell that really, there's, they're glimpses and only God knows how horrible hell is or those who are in hell now. But God wants for no man to spend their eternal existence in hell. And only as a scene of how horrible hell is can a person see why Psalm 22 makes any sense at all. And that's the reason why we took so much time talking about hell last time. Because Psalm 22 describes the great length that God went to to keep man from his end being held. And we saw also that it's Isaiah 53 that tells us why God did this to the Lord Jesus Christ. One simple statement in Isaiah 53, which was very simply, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. Verse eight, Isaiah 53, eight. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. So Psalm 22 describes a sacrifice that God wants every person, every person in the whole wide world to possess and to call their own. He wants every person in the world to say the words of 1 Corinthians 5, 7. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, which says, for even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. When Christ, our sacrifice, was sacrificed for us, that means he took our place of being forsaken by God, even, the face, even in the face of him crying incessantly to God for help. So it's this cry in verse one here that sets the stage for the whole of Psalm 22. And every word 
in his first cry is so important. Why, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He knew he had to suffer from sins. He knew that. But this state of being forsaken by God was so horrible that it jarred him and it shocked his soul to such an extent that even though he knew intellectually, he still cries out, why? Why? What is the reason for me to be forsaken? He had only known constant fellowship with God the Father for all eternity. There was never a time in all eternity when he was separated from God the Father. He was always as described as he described himself in John 1.18, John 1.18, John 1.18. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. He was in the bosom of the Father, constantly with him. He writing as a personification of wisdom in Proverbs 8.30, Christ has made unto us wisdom, he is wisdom. It says in Proverbs 8.30, I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. He comes, he's speaking to his enemies in John 10.30, and he tells them, I and my Father are one. But now it's all different. Now the Lord Jesus has been forsaken by God. Even though he knew this intellectually, it comes as such a shock that he asks, why? And then the next word, hast, hast. The next word, hast. Why hast thou? He didn't say, why will you forsake me? As if it's some future approaching coming threat that he was gonna be forsaken. But he cries out, you've already forsaken me. So he uses the word hast. Why hast thou forsaken me? And then he says the word thou, thou. Why hast thou forsaken me? Here we see him calling out to God the Father with that same tenderness as we saw when Isaac called out to his father, Abraham, with some of the most tender words in the Bible in Genesis 22.7. In Genesis 22.7, where it says, Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. And he said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? It's all that tender relationship there that made up that special bond between Abraham and Isaac. He calls him my father. And now we see that same tender love that made up the special relationship between the Lord Jesus and God the Father. And he calls out, my God and thou. And just it was the hardest for Abraham to hear his son Isaac call out to him, my father. It was the hardest for God the Father to hear the Lord Jesus call out to him, my God, thou, why hast thou forsaken me? This was not a treacherous Judas who is doing this to him that had forsaken him. This was not a weak Peter that had forsaken the Lord. This was God the Father that had forsaken him. And so all the power of that comes out in the word thou. Thou hast forsaken me. It's made it so hard to bear. Forsaken, forsaken, not corrected, abandoned. Forsaken, like being cast off. He didn't say, why hast thou forsaken? He didn't say that. But it was all the more personal when he said, why hast thou forsaken me? To describe again how personal this was. Why have thou, thou and me in the question, why has thou forsaken me? Just it brings out this deeper question that he's really asking here. What about our relationship? Because there was no one closer to God the Father than the Lord Jesus Christ. So after he asked this piercing question, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He goes on to, to make the worst statement that anyone could possibly make when he says that God is so far from helping me. That's a horrible state to be in. It reminds you of, of these accounts of people who 
their boat is sunk or crashed or whatever, and they're in a they're in a boat there in the in the ocean, and they see cargo ships coming by, and they send up flares, and they yell and do everything, and the ship just goes by. And people describe that what that feels like. That's what he's describing here. Why are you so far from helping me? In verse two, he stated that I'm not being heard. God is not hearing me. What a horrible feeling. In verse three is the feeling that he has that he has actually been made into the sin offering and that God can't look on him. He is the spotless lamb of God, but the spotless lamb of God is carrying the load of sin of the world on him, so placed on him, and he feels the separation from God. Now, it's important to state at this point that while we're looking at what happened to the spotless lamb of God, we're also looking at what happens to every soul that's cast into hell and how a person feels so acutely in hell that he's been abandoned by God, he's been forsaken by God. In hell, he's saying, God gave up on me, I'm abandoned for eternity. In hell, a person who's been cast into hell, he cries out to God constantly for, for help and there's no response. There are blood-curdling cries right now in hell and how a person who is cast into hell is so acutely aware that he's not separated from his sin. He's separated from God, but he's not separated from the sin. He doesn't want to be separated from God. He wants to be separated from his sin. And it's because he's not separated from his sin that, that he's separated from God. And in hell, people are wishing, I wish I could be rid of my sin. I wish it could be gone from me. And the Lord Jesus described this horrible state in John 8, 24, John 8, 24, when the Lord said, I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins. For if you believe not that I am, you shall die in your sins. What he meant there is that you will die permanently attached to your sins, not separated from your sins, which means you can never be helped by God forever. And he turns his eyes to the wonderful histories in the Bible of those who, who trusted in God and they were delivered. They trusted in God and they were delivered. And he looks at all these histories of the children of God. And he's, he sees the pattern. They, they depended on God. They relied on God over and over again. He repeats, trusted, 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 delivered, delivered. Verse four, our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted thou dost deliver them. Verse five, they cried unto thee, were delivered, they trusted in thee. And he keeps repeating this three times about how they trusted in God and, and they were delivered. And each time he comes back to this haunting question, what about me? They, they trusted, they were delivered, what about me? Why am I still not delivered when everybody else was delivered? What's wrong with me? that I'm not delivered? And these are the questions that haunt him. And this is what makes up the reason for why he is described in Hebrews 5.7, in Hebrews 5.7, who in the days of his flesh had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears. And so in verse one, he turns to God with his cry. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so the answer is that in verse two, thou hearest not. Verse four, we see how he turns to consider the experience of others, and, and he finds no comfort there either. And now we come to our verse, in verse six, where he turns to himself. He turns to himself, and he says, but I'm a worm, and no man, a reproach of men, and despise of the people. He says, I'm a worm. Anoki, anoki tovla, I am a worm. I am a worm, where the Hebrew word tovla, it means maggot. I'm a maggot or a grub that when it was stepped on, releases this red staining liquid. 
as it's being smashed, and we said that that's what was used to stain fabrics, like the red fabric in the tabernacle that spoke of his blood. But how low he saw himself when he said, I am a worm. That's about as low as you can get. He said, lo ish, lo ish, no man. Uh, lo ish, and no man, and no man. So in verse six, he's thinking about himself as you're on the cross. He says, I'm no man. I am a worm and no man. And this is the conclusion that he has drawn about himself. And so what we really are looking at here, and this is what we said there here, is that Psalm 22 fills in the picture of him on the cross that the Gospels do not tell us. The Gospels do not tell us what he was thinking on the cross. And when we read the Gospels, we're just struck. He seems so silent. And we wondered. You read the Gospels, you wonder, was he so out of his mind with pain and shock that he was oblivious to what was going on? What was he thinking? I mean, after all, the soldiers, they knew what he was going to go through, and even they showed mercy in offering him a narcotic, a morphine, so to speak, of vinegar and gall. And when he tasted that in Matthew 27, 34, Matthew 27, 34, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. He knew it was a narcotic. He said, no. He would not allow himself to be put out of his mind. He, he said, I, I won't take the morphine. But he seems so silent on the cross in the Gospels. We wonder, what's going on? What's he thinking? What's happening? And these are the verses that answer that question of just how much aware the Lord Jesus was of what was going on with him and between God and how different his state was in comparison to the Father's and how terrible his state was that he compares himself to a worm. He turns from, from looking at his condition and of being spiritually forsaken by God, not heard by God, being physically like a worm, no longer even a man, and he turns to the people below the cross, and now he sees them. He's looked at, looked at God, the Father. He's looked at the history of the people of God, histories. He's looked at himself. Now he looks at those in front of him. And he sees the first and foremost conclusion, observation that he has as he says, I am a reproach of men, in verse seven. I am a reproach of men. That's what he says. He says, I am a reproach of men, in verse six. Now, the Hebrew word here that's used for reproach is the word herpa, herpa, which means reproach, but it also means a disgrace and a shame. So he sees that the people are looking at him, and they're looking at him, and they're saying, he's a shame. He's a shame of Israel. He sees the people looking at him and, and concluding what a shame he is. The Lord was looked at as a shame to the Jewish people. The Jewish people saw the Lord Jesus as a shame. Nothing has changed. That's the way it is today. It's so interesting. Go, if you go to the internet and just type in, on the search engine there, just type in, who are the most famous Jews who ever lived? Very simple question. You'll get a list. And if it's a list that's compiled by a Jewish person, you will see names like Albert Einstein, Leonard Bernstein, Sigmund Freud, Sandy Koufax, Moses, Karl Marx, Paul Ehrlich, King David, Bob Dylan, Jerry Seinfeld, Jonas Salk, and Frank Goldemeyer. And the list goes on and on. Maybe you see Benjamin Netanyahu, I don't know. But if a Gentile compiles a list of the most famous Jews who ever lived, the Gentile looks at the Jew, who is the most known and worshiped by billions of people who all the world knows about, and he puts Jesus of Nazareth at or near the top of the list, but not in the Jerusalem Post. You will not find that in the Jerusalem Post. 
So when a typical person sees Jesus of Nazareth, typical Jewish person sees Jesus of Nazareth at the top of the list, I can tell you his reaction. It's like, oh, no. No, no, no. When you say to a typical Jewish person, do you know? Do you, have you ever thought that Jesus was Jewish? As if it's some revelation. You know what? The Jewish person really doesn't like to acknowledge that, and it's kind of like, yeah, I guess he was. Why is that? Why is that? Why don't Jewish people put the name at the top or near the top of the most famous Jewish person that is the only Jewish person that is more known to everybody down through the ages. He's followed by billions of people. Why don't Jewish people think of Jesus as number one, the most influential, the most famous Jew that ever lived? Why do Jewish people typically not think of Jesus as Jewish? Why do Jewish people typically cringe at the thought that Jesus was Jewish? And verse six is the answer. The answer is verse six. I am a reproach of men. I am a reproach of Jewish people. Of Jewish people. I am a herpa of men. I am a shame to my people. They are ashamed of me. He's still ashamed to the Jewish people. They never say, he's one of ours. They don't say that. What an amazing statement that the Jewish people still think of the Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus, as a shame to Israel, or herpa. What an amazing statement that after 2,000 years, they still see him as a shame. So this statement in verse six, I am a shame of men, it shows us that there's gonna come a fulfillment of a prophecy in Romans 11.26. In Romans 11.26, it says, all Israel shall be saved. So that's a day that's coming when every Jewish person who will be alive or survive, and only one third will survive, that they will all be saved. And, and so the term remnant's not gonna have any meaning anymore because all Israel shall be saved. And when will that occur? When will that happen? And how will you know when all Israel shall be saved? And it's all tied up in verse six. It's all tied up in verse six. Now, today we can say that all Israel views Jesus as a shame, a shame to the Jewish people. Think of it like a meter, okay, a saved meter. Right? And today, the saved meter for the Jewish people, it's pegged all the way in the red zone, you know, the zone that says lost. The zone that says lost and the zone of the meter that also said, says Jesus is viewed as a shame. So lost and Jesus is viewed as a shame. shame. That's the way the meter is stayed. Well, when, that, when is that saved meter gonna swing all the way over to the other side and the other side, the saved side, the saved side of the meter, and when that's gonna happen, then the Jewish people are gonna view the Lord Jesus as the opposite of a shame. Well, what is the opposite of a shame? It says over there, Jesus is viewed with respect, with honor, with praise, with pride. We're proud of him. And that's what's marked on the other side of the saved meter. So on the other side of the saved meter, we have where the Jewish people are right now. They're on the, on the wrong side. They're ashamed of the Lord Jesus. But when they all get saved in Romans eleven twenty six, then the Lord, then then the Jewish people are going to respect the Lord Jesus. They're going to honor him. They're going to praise him. They're gonna say, he's one of ours. Then the Jewish people will say, put Jesus of Nazareth at the top of that best Jews list. The best Jews who ever lived. He's, he, he's so much on the top, don't put anybody else after him. Yeah. And, and then, that's when the needle's gonna peg out on the save side. When, when it all swings over to the save side, and, and that needle's gonna swing over so fast, it's probably gonna break off. And if you wanna see what it looks like, you wanna see what it really looks like, all you have to do is just look at Isaiah 9, 6. A very 
Very, very famous verse. Very, very famous verse. Where, Isaiah 9, 6, where it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us the son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher Tom Cantor here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org and sign up for his daily devotional. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestorationministries.org. You can write to Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711330, P.O. Box 711330, Santee, California, Santee, California, 92071. Or email Tom Cantor at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org.